Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Today, seven is your lucky number as the Warner Archive Collection brings you seven, count them, seven new releases, brand new to DVD, and we're here to talk all about them. First up is the Hanna-Barbera television series Yogi's Gang. Then we have a quintet of quintessential westerns from the 1950s and 60s, including Hiawatha, Fort Vengeance, The Boy from Oklahoma, Cole Younger, Gunfighter, and The Gunhawk. And last but certainly not least, we have a sextet within a collection, the final six RKO Falcon Adventure Murder Mysteries, as we bring you the Falcon Movie Mystery Collection. Volume 2. Volume 2, starring Mr. Tom Conway as The Falcon, Tom Lawrence. I have a question. Will there be murder and mystery? And mayhem. Indeed. (laughs) And even one of them is in Mexico. But it is in a collection. And it would be a perfect place. So speaking of a perfect place, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, oh, let's, gold star segue. Let, let, let's get on our arc and have a lark to Yogi's Arc Lark, which is the pilot for the Yogi's Gang television series and is the first episode as we present the entire series and the pilot. So let's talk about Yogi's Gang and its aegis. Gentlemen. Quick context. Yogi's Arc Lark aired as part of the storied ABC Saturday Morning Superstar movie, which was much like primetime Sunday movie of the week, Tuesday movie of the week. It was a rotating showcase for animation pilot movies and standalone movies from a variety of studios, including Hanna-Barbera. And what was really remarkable about Yogi's Arc Lark was after a what seems like an eternity to a child, <laughs> fallow period for the classic talking animal Hanna-Barbera creatures, characters, they were all reunited in this special movie, Yogi's Arc Lark, which really had everybody in it. Quite literally, they all fit into Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, who was a handyman who worked at Jellystone, and he built a very, very cool flying ark, and all the funny animal cartoon characters get on board it in order to search for the perfect place, because... You know, to paraphrase Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, it was time to stamp out pollution. So, in the context of the times, this was probably one of the first team-ups. Oh, yeah. In a major way. Yeah, in a major way. And this was so successful that not only did the Ark save the species of animals, it created, like, Laugh Olympics... And the great, what was Treasure it? Hunt, Space Race, but not yes. just Yogi Bear. I mean, I would, you know, this was also yeah. shortly after Ark Lark, we had Super Friends. Right. So, I mean, it was... The team-up. The team-up. As Dan rightly pointed out, the, the made-for-television movie had taken hold on ABC in the late 60s. And so this was their idea to start on Saturday mornings from various producers, including Hanna-Barbera and Patty Frilling and Filmation and uh, Rankin and Bass. And and, and was this a full hour uh, with commercials? These were full hours, and the very first one was The Brady Kids on Mysterious Island. That was the very first episode on September 9th, 1972. But the following week was the reunion of all the Hanna-Barbera original characters in Yogi's Ark Lark. And for me, as a kid, this was Nirvana, because... 
I'm just a little bit younger than Yogi Bear and Huckleberry Hound. I grew up literally from infancy on those characters. So by McGill Gorilla and uh, Peter Potamus, that was kind of the end. Secret Squirrel and Adam Ant was kind of the segue into what eventually became Everyone Herculoids and Space Morocco. Ghost. Oh. You, well, you can't say Secret Squirrel without Morocco. That's Mo. right. That's like saying Ricochet Rabbit without Drew Ding, Long. ding, ding. But the point is, is that this was for a new generation of kids that had grown up watching Scooby-Doo and Banana Splits and the late 60s, early 70s Hanna-Barbera characters. This was an introduction they didn't know. By 1972, if my memory is serving me correctly, Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear weren't in syndication. By no, but point. like, you know, Squidly Diddly was, Augie Doggy was, Touche oh, yeah. Turtle was, yeah. but like Huckleberry and Yogi, Snagglepuss was still, yeah, so they had, they you had, knew who they were, but you weren't used to watching They them. had come back into syndication in 66, and I think by 72, depending on what city you lived in, they weren't as prominent, yeah. they weren't being marketed, and this reeks of Joe Barbera's creativity in the way he would sell programming to the networks every year. I just want to say that the overtones in this were not only... Post-action for children's television. And yes. not only did it have a, have a very large flying biblical reference, but the biggest element of it was the brand new to the times uh, environmentalism. Ecology, our solution to fight pollution... I was a kid at the Nixon time. Nixon had a, just recently created the EPA. That's right, folks. Nixon created Can you imagine EPA. that? Yes. I've seen the the children of this series, but I had never seen uh, this with the arc. It's very emblematic of the show, but, you know, if you watch a lot of shows right around this period, like, by the time we're starting getting into, like, Treasure Hunt and Space Race, the messaging is not as forefront. But this is very much... Well, the networks were nervous about complaints about irresponsible children's programming so they were putting their best foot forward and saying like no here we go we're going to take on these things and we're going to have fun but educational programming i mean if you watch the first like season of super friends you'll see the same thing so dan why don't you tell us and matt you as well why don't you just name some of the characters that populate yogi's arc well let's start off with yogi and boo boo bear hey, followed boy. up by I know that there's uh, it's McGilla Gorilla powers the uh, <laughs> the arc, and that was really with and our bananas. Hearts. And I noticed, and now I'm I'm totally going off topic, but yeah, we're just so we're doing a roll this. call. We're doing a roll call. We'll get to your stuff All in right. a second. I'll All do right. the roll call. Please, Please. Do. okay. At the helm, Yogi and Boo Boo Bear. They're number one, Huckleberry Hound. At security, Snagglepuss, Quick Draw McGraw, and Baba Louie. Their covert surveillance team, Adam Ant, Secret Squirrel, and Morocco Mole. Manning the rafters, Wally Gator, Squidly Diddly, Augie Doggy, and Doggy Daddy. At recon, Touche Turtle, Peter Potamus, and powering the arc, McGilla Gorilla. Now, do you... And those are just the regulars. That's yeah. just That's some. just the regulars. Now, now, perhaps you want to mention the bad guys. I didn't memorize them off the top of my head. Greedy Genie? Yeah, there's Mr. Hilarious P. Prankster. Mr. Bigot. There's a lot of Mr. Like problem, Mr. A lot of litter. A lot of litter. litter. It's just not bad guys. There's bad guys and bad gals. Yeah, it's highly selfish. Gossipy Witch? It's pretty overwhelming how many characters kind of come in and out, but what's not overwhelming is really what their quest is that keeps up throughout the series. Well, the, the setup is in the arc lark, fed up with the failure, the environmental failure around them, Yogi and the gang go off looking for the perfect place. At the end of their quest for the perfect place, they realize it is actually their mission to make 
Earth the perfect place. Well, their home specifically the where Earth. they came from. Hence and where... the setup for Yogi's Gang. I think one of the great things about Yogi's Gang is it is a testament to the talents, not only of, of course, of Hanna Barbera, but to Dawes Butler and oh, Don God. Messick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who were wow. the primary vocal artists of for the all. Of, yes. I mean to just. Be that would have going been, back and forth between all those voices. I don't know. That would have been they a, recorded all at once. Right. Yeah. Say, okay, I'm going to do all the Huckleberry Hound now. I'll do all the Yogi. I'll do all the that, Quick Draw. I would love to be a fly in the wall. Yeah, for that I mean, I, I, I'm sure there was um, a great amount of creativity involved in the creation of that. And the blooper reels must be great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was certainly but, schizophrenic. Uh, they, they didn't bring in the primetime characters. You didn't see no, right. Top Cat. You didn't see the Jetsons. You didn't see the Flintstones. They awaited you in Laugh Olympics. And I think that might have been the fact that those shows were all still, still being on shown uh, on Saturday uh-huh. morning. I, I thought in the pilot, Top Cat made an appearance in the background. There's a lot of characters in the background on the pilot. Yeah, Yogi's yeah. Art I think it's uh, you need the magnifying glass. Okay, okay. Still, yeah. I just wanted to say that Arc Lark alone as a pilot is just so fascinating from beginning to end. And it does. It's even bigger and broader. And well, the mission is... It's very of the imagination and yet very uh, sane with what was going on at the time because every time they'd find a perfect place, somebody would immediately come and build and pollute it. And yeah, well, they, they or, had, you know, or somebody would be selfish or somebody, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it's sort of like, you know, the old Captain Marvel Seven Deadly Sins. I mean, these were the modern deadly sins. Right. Yeah. And what's great is also is, is the different Hanna-Barbera characters in each episode. It's not. It's not the Yogi show. He's nope. just the captain. Like, you know, like Huckleberry saves the day, you know. Everybody contributes. Everybody has a little, you know, in the compact running time, they get their screen time. Right. And let us also say that these episodes have been remastered for this release. So the colors are very vibrant and sharp. And that's really a gift to all the fans that are used to seeing the very washed out. And these were all produced on film. So right. So we were able to go back. We went back to new film elements, new interpositives that were made from the camera negatives for these new masters. So it's a perfect way to see the perfect place. And I just wanted to add, you know, Squidly Diddly finally made it out of that zoo. And I felt good for him, but then, you know, was the Ark itself a zoo? Well, Snagglepuss had an audience, and that's what's important. Exit. Stage left. That's where I was going. And on to our next... Okay. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Let's go to the Westerns. So we have Westerns from the 1950s and 60s, mostly, but not all, from the hallowed halls of Allied Artists' name monogram. And uh, we have one Warner Brothers epic in the middle. So let's start off the discussion chronologically with Vincent Edwards in the Walter Mirisch production of Hiawatha. By the shore of Gitchy Gummy, by the shining big sea water, at the doorway of his wigwam in the pleasant summer morning, Hiawatha stood and waited. All the air was full of freshness, all the earth was bright and joyous, and before him, through the sunshine, westward toward the neighboring forest, Past in golden swarms the amu, past the bears the, the past the bees, the honeymakers, burning, burning, singing in the sunshine. Now, Dan, is that the box copy? No, that's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Hiawatha, inspiration for the movie Hiawatha. Starring Vincent Edwards, who thought to himself, gee, 
taking on this role must be very racy. Maybe someday I'll get cast as the doctor known as Ben Casey. (laughs) 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 But 10 years before Ben Casey, he went before the Cinecolor cameras for this, the final monogram picture. This is the last film released under the monogram banner before Allied Artists terminated monogram's existence and just became Allied Artists full-time. But uh, this film is in Cinecolor, which was a lower-cost color process than Technicolor. But the results, I think, are pretty impressive, especially for most people who've only seen this movie in black and white, because that's the way it's been shown on television in recent years. Oh, that's interesting, because did they have a separate black and white? Now in color, again, for the first time. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that's very interesting. I noticed that the colors had a different cast. I didn't... Well, because Cinecolor was a red-blue, kind of like two-strip Technicolor, it was a red-blue process, and it was cheaper... It was eventually the industry adoption of a monopack single strip color process that Eastman Color developed that could embody all three colors. Mm. That meant the end of the heavy Technicolor cameras that needed three strips of film. Right. Much to the sadness of those of us who love Technicolor. But Cinecolor was kind of orangey blue, and they had gotten better at it by this time, so that when you look at this film, the colors look far more natural than Cinecolor films made in the late 40s, I think. I think that you're right about that because we had been watching some from like the mid, mid-40s mid where it, it the colors really popped, but these had this n- nice uh, muted earth tones, which fits with the story, which this is a Western before the white man came. Yes, I mean, aside from Cinecolor, right. that is something else that sets this Western apart because it's a Western... Minus it's the bloodshed. A, yeah. Well, well, it does have. It well, does but have it's some internal yeah. bloodshed. It's it's no. Indians uh, and Indians. Minus genocide. The Indians in the in this tale were not getting along with each other. Yeah. We have two tribes on the verge of conflict. We have a love story between Hiawatha and Minnehaha, and then we have sort of like a secret revelation. I mean, it's all like classic Campbellian hero tale stuff played out in the pre-Pilgrim American West. And this was a big deal. North, East, actually. Yeah, it was. Great Lakes, Great Lakes. I think it was actually like the the Finger Lakes district. Great Lakes. Okay, yeah. I'm not an expert. The Bill Finger Lakes. (laughs) This is a big budget epic. I just had to make the Bill Finger reference. Uh, You you can never have enough of those. No, but this film was a really important work to Walter Mirisch, who later went on to be a big producer with Mirisch Pictures at United Artists. But he was guiding, as a very young man, uh, at Monogram and Allied Artists, these very earnest, well-made productions that took the Western and other genre films into a more adult genre. And this film was directed by Kurt Newman and produced by Walter Mirisch. A fine group of people behind it. And I also like the fact that this you didn't see this very much in that era. The credits are all at the end. Oh, the, That's which, very, very unique. Which I appreciate because all the rest of the films, the credits are at the beginning. And as someone that likes to watch the background artists, I'm like, oh, that guy's good. Who's that? And then you get to the end of the movies and it's just right, right. boom. Yeah, yeah, done. Done. Ah, uh, should have taken it out to the beginning and then gone. Anyway. <laughs> I get the sense that they took pride in making this movie. They were a yeah. smaller company and they were working on smaller budgets. And I said, let's make this one color did, and put the titles at the Did end. they know it was going to be the final monogram? I mean, I, it, it was released in December of 52. I assume that they did. 
by the time it was released, but I really don't know. One conjecture that they wanted to go out on a high note. <laughs> a Hiawatha note? Ooh. Yeah. So we stay at Allied Artists proper for 1953's Fort Vengeance. Directed by Leslie Sealander. Who is a name that should be familiar to many people listening to this podcast because he was a prominent director of westerns that we've talked about, including some of the monogram ones. And like Hiawatha, this is a kind of a different western, aside from the it, obvious fact that it is a northwestern. And it is in Cinecolor well, also. On the podcast, we did another Canadian western. Uh, that was when we had Kirby Grant and Chinook. That's right. And this is another... The Wonder Dog. This is another great And they'll example. be back. Now, again... What I like about this is it's, of course, California, but that doesn't matter. California can be anywhere in the world. There is that bend in the creek around Bronson Canyon. (laughs) The only problem is everyone shoots it from the same angle because I think that's probably the best level thing. So every time in a movie somebody comes to that little bend in the creek, you're like, seen it, seen it, But they didn't go to Vasquez Rocks for this one. Well, it's because they were in the great northwest. (laughs) And they had, and I loved the fur hats that, of course, the Mounties must wear in the summer or whatever all year long. But this is a fun uh, story, which it's... Um, this is very much a, a revisionist Western, an altogether revisionist, yes. a whole different vision for the Western. And it's funny, it's like even though this is a very much United States production, it feeds oh into the difference between the Canadian mytholo- self-mythologizing yes. and, Amer- and United States self-mythologizing in that ultimately the through line of Fort Vengeance, the very misnamed Fort Vengeance is <laughs> Fort Vengeance is about the importance of good government yeah, which is fort, central to Canadian thinking it should thinking. be Fort Tolerance yes this was Fort like, Tolerance and even handedness this is like the Degrassi episode <laughs> of a western because it's got two guys you know two brothers two Americans Americans on the run from the law they cross a place in the middle of Griffith Park and wind up in Canada and on that side the Indians. Well, it's very much like the Foreign Legion setup, you think. These two right. guys are on the run because the brother's a hothead and they've committed a crime. The other older, more responsible brother, played by James Craig, is covering, is protecting his brother, so they both enlist in the Mounties. But on the way to the Mounties, they run into Sitting Bull's American Native Americans and they shoot one uh, just on the way to joining the Mounties. And so that haunts the brothers and stuff. But they join up with the Mounties, and then they become Mounties, but then the bad brother becomes bad again. And it's good brother versus bad brother. And American Native Americans versus Canadian Native Canadians. Yes. Well, because one is in the realm of this movie getting treated even-handedly yes. and, and believes in justice. Right. And then the, 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 and they have health insurance. Those <laughs> they it, do. They, those they, native nope. Canadian Oh, Indians. no. The, those, now, now the what's Canadian Indians. You were, brought up Good Brother, Bad Brother. And the thing of like watching these movies in a row is we get to do a little more spread out for George, but is the omnipresence in this batch of Westerns of yeah. dualism. Oh, yeah. Well, good, stark. bad, brother, brother. But in really, really stark contrast in these. I mean, it's always there in, in a hero fiction. In, in and it's Western, certainly but. a prominent factor in the next film we're going to talk about, which is 1954's The Boy from Oklahoma, starring Will Rogers Jr. and Nancy Olsen, and directed by Michael... Michael... What's that guy's He's name? done a couple of small I movies. Think he worked here for a while. Michael, oh, my God, sounds... Christopher. It's, some, it's like a first name. It's I like a first it, name. My Michael, third no is final. Michael, my, What's no. his name? 
Kurt. Kurt Michael, Michael Kurt Curtis. Michael Curtis. Oh, I thought you were talking about the one. You that... must remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael Curtis, one of the great Warner Brothers directors, really is in fine fettle here. This I think actually... this movie really proves far more than <laughs> what everyone knows of Michael Curtis. What a good director he was. He could do any genre yeah, and anything. do it well, and anything. does it so well. I mean, this is like, this is like an A B Western. It, or a BA Western? But you know, and, and as we were talking about the brother versus brother, the dualism, what works better, you know, in a genre or or especially one with a lower budget than like drama between two leads and they each have two vision, two different visions of society and they clash. And this was actually this was an A picture. This was yeah. you know, if Curtiz was directing, it was okay. an A. Yes, picture. it was an A. And that sets it apart now, from some of the monogram and allied artist pictures now, we've been talking about. Was this the other thing I want to say is sort of funny is like seeing Fort Vengeance talking about Fort Vengeance and Boy from Oklahoma in a row is how timely these movies are now. Right. And you know, one is about equal protection under the law. The other is very much about the gun or not the gun. Well, yeah. These are, there seems to be problems that we wrestled with as a society after World War II, and now we're dealing with it all over so again. So, Dan, what you're saying is, is that if we were to follow the way that Will Rogers Jr. character suggests that we should be protecting our homes with trick rope. Absolutely. Now, Will Rogers, of course, was the great American Ziegfeld stage star, humorist, cowboy, film star at Fox, who tragically died in the 1930s. And his son played him in the story of Will Rogers, the film Warner Brothers released in the 50s, which is also part of the Warner Archive collection. And it was such a hit that Warner Brothers wanted to find another film in which Will Rogers Jr. could star, and The Boy from Oklahoma turned out to be that film. Interestingly, this story served as the basis for a television series, Sugarfoot, which has no connection to the motion picture starring Randolph Scott that was called Sugarfoot. That's correct. So, just as there is the feature film Cheyenne, which has nothing to do with the television series Cheyenne, the television series of Sugarfoot had no relation to the motion picture known as Sugarfoot, but the boy from Oklahoma served as the basis for the TV series Sugarfoot, and some of the character actors from this film. That was when I was because when I was yes when I was watching the boy from Oklahoma, I was like, wait, it's the gang from Sugarfoot. Wait. It's the lawyer from Sugarfoot. Oh, this is Sugarfoot. Sugar. In Sugarfoot, though, doesn't he use his gun every once in a while? No, he never uses it. We don't know. I mean, I haven't seen. I haven't seen Sugarfoot I, in a I long time. I but don't I, believe so. But you have seen Sugarfoot in certain episodes of uh, Cheyenne season five. Yeah, I think you're confusing Sugarfoot with Batlash, but that's getting into DC. Wow. Anyway, or Bad Guano. But anyway, the boy from Oklahoma is a surefire treat. And there's some interesting things about, you know, in The Boy from Oklahoma, Will Rogers Jr. is given to quoting the character of his father, and the quotes are Will Rogers' quotes. Absolutely. This is still building on the success of yep. the biography. I just thought that it was fun that uh, mail only came through every two weeks, and that in order to get a letter mailed, you did have to threaten the postman with violence. Well, it's kind of like Warner Archive Collection <laughs> podcast letter. And it was great. It was also, you know, how... how That's s- right. I mean, there were a few other Westerns that took this approach, but, like, the boy from Oklahoma, in terms of, like, the pacifist hero 
showing that there was another way to tame a wild west. It was sort of interesting was this film didn't flinch from, yeah, this guy's scared. Sure. He's smart. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. But when he's faced with danger, he's as human as anybody and, else. And it's an anti-hero before yes. the anti-hero yes. became the it, Well, he's, he's smart. I mean, because he is going to be a lawyer, but he's self-taught. So it sort of is this, like, rugged, well, very Western hero. It's a very well Rogerian. Um, and I have to mention the supporting brief uh, scene starring Lon yeah. Chaney Jr., of which course. really is, is one of the highlights of the film. Because even he who is pure by heart and says <laughs> his prayer by night may watch The Boy from Oklahoma any night. He was crazy, Charlie. Yes. I thought, yeah. Yes. Which is, I, I if I kept on wincing every time he took a swig of whiskey yeah. out of that broken necked uh, bottle, I was like, it's a good thing I know that that's sugar glass because I'm worried about Lon. It, I'm, I'm just glad he didn't turn into a werewolf at the end because then we would have had a much different film. Which brings us to Cole Younger Gunfighter, which a also much different film does not have werewolves in it. From 1958. And starring Frank Lovejoy and James Best, who is the star yes. of our Warner Archive collection release, Verboten, and as Roscoe P. P. Coltrane, Coltrane from The Duke's animated series. Oh, there's a live action series, too. That's right. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is in no disrespect to you, Frank Lovejoy, but this really is actually James Best's picture. This is, oh James my. Best is terrific. Yeah. I didn't expect that, but I mean, he was the one with the big decisions, oh, yeah. and the, yeah. and he was anguished in this film. Cole Younger is the donor figure, the Obi Wan figure. Yeah, yes, but uh, James Best's character of Kit—that's your Luke. This was in wide. This is Cinemascope. This is a sixteen by nine letterbox master that we've created for this release. And and uh, when I popped this one in, I didn't know that, and I go, ooh, it's wide. Yeah. It's a whole new definition of wide open spaces, but this is an allied artist film from 1958, and Abby Dalton, who would later be seen frequently on the Hollywood Squares, uh, she's she's in this uh, in this film. She was on the Joey Bishop show as his uh. wife. That's what she's best known for, but she was on the Hollywood Squares I, very frequently. I don't mind the Hollywood Squares. No, that's, that's, a, that's a compliment <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But this is a, one of the Allied Artist Westerns from the 1950s that we get requests for quite often, and we're happy to make it available finally in its 16 by 9 letterbox format. And then we'll move to 1963, where we have some veterans of different Westerns as just, Rory yeah, Calhoun yeah. and Rod Cameron. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I mean, there's a metatextual element to the Gunhawk that mm -hmm. is only, you know, there's the Western fans out there who are totally going to get it, but but people who are discovering these films for the first time, you know, Rory Calhoun and Rod Cameron were two of the big, big, big B-cowboy stars, and this film portrays them in their twilight and it's sort of a very sort of and they they each have a younger protege yeah. who battles with them you yeah. know it's like the young guy versus Getting the back old to that guy dualism no thing. but it's there but this is dual dualism but yeah but this is also and it's best, sort of the really. Rory Calhoun and Rad, Rod Cameron personas looking back on themselves and there's a camaraderie there but you know one is more of a gray gunslinger, the other is a man of the law, which is very true to the kind of parts they play. It reminded me a little bit of Ride the High Country because you've got this homage to the westerns that Peckinpah did with Joel McCray and Randolph Scott in that film. And this is that was a big budget MGM picture. This was a smaller budget Allied Artist film, but has a lot of the same 
feelings coming only a year later. And it's also, it has a, the MacGuffin yes. of this film is so great. I mean, the, there's a gunslinger who's lived outside the law, but is actually a secret man of honor. Yes. But you don't want to cross him. He could have He was almost a deputy, he, but he, he turned his back. There. And then the, the sheriff that wanted to make him a man of the law, they have a... They have an affectionate but distant relationship because of this divide. And anyway, one thing leads to another. And the gunslinger and the young kid he takes under his wing, who, by the way, I think Brad Pitt should check his genetics because <laughs> that actor, uh, Rod funny. Lauren, I think is a relative of his. Or maybe they're just from the same town. They have to go on the run and they go to this town of sanctuary sanctuary which is like the shangri-la for guns oh my gosh you get I, there through a mountain mine cave it's hidden in a valley a, aka bronson cave yeah and it's and it's you know it's it's a place where all are welcome their paths are unknown but but there well, is no they're welcome allowed. as long as they pay 25 dollars. well yeah you have to pay your fee to get in this is no wretched hive of scum and villainy no no Sanctuary is very different. And the sanctuary is uh, besieged by two people. Yes, besieged very calmly. Yeah. By two. And then there's a very, very poignant ending to this. Oh, the ending is great. This was probably one of, definitely one of my favorites out of these because it had all the, all the stuff that's great about Westerns. It's got the opposing moral forces, the different ideas, civilization coming in, and the accepting of justice. I mean, like. And Western theatrical motion pictures were starting to diminish somewhat in number because of the vast number of Westerns on television. Right. So the ones that were being made were a, a little more carefully chosen and. And written, and uh, I do have to mention that the leading lady of this movie, Ruta Lee, also was a frequent guest on the Hollywood Squares, <laughs> as well as the female hostess of PDQ, which was another game show. <laughs> wow! The late six years. So, right. so well, there's I'm, a little bit of, of <laughs> trivia for you okay. TV fans out there. Oh wait, well, as long as you're doing TV <laughs> trivia, the deputy, the counterpart mm. to the uh, Rod Lauren character, was played by Morgan Woodward who would be familiar to people because of what? I mean, aside from the fact that he did tons of work throughout his career, but I'm specifically speaking to the nerds out there. Come on, come on. Neither of you guys recognize Morgan Woodward. Password. Captain Stacy from Star Trek. Come on, oh. Omega Glory. <laughs> Epod Nista, you're saying it wrong. Also, Van Gelder, Dagger of the Mic. He's got wow. such an incredible body of work. I didn't know where you were going with that. Because yeah, I could have been going to Bonanza, no, to Hazard, actually, or he, X-Files. He, he would frequently um, escort Ann Miller, uh, who was a uh -huh. good friend of mine, to many events, the Golden Boot Awards, they'd go oh. together. So I met him and had dinner with him a couple of times. So I, I know a lot about his career. Is he and that tall know. in real life? Yes, yeah. yes. And he <laughs> was just, just the boot. nicest, yeah. nicest man. Really, really great guy. Well, we're... Speaking of a really great guy. How can you get greater <laughs> than Tom Lawrence, a.k.a. The Falcon? Now, I just want to clear this one thing up because I maybe, is it my accent? But I say Falcon. But they keep calling him, here comes the fall. There's been a bit of a linguistic drift in America. You'll notice that certain things we just say differently than they did in the 30s. Well, I, there were some guys, 40s, New York 50s. characters in it who would say, hey, it's the Falcon. And I'm like, there, that's me. Yeah. But I do not say Falcon. When I think of Falcon, I think of like war games and Dr. Falcon, you know, something like that, which would be spelled. Now, 
tell us a little bit about okay, the history sorry. of Tom Lawrence, the Falcon, yes, and please. Tom Conway, George. Well, I think we first should point out that this is the Falcon Movie Mystery Collection Volume 2. Hence yes. the request for history. And Volume 1 contained the first seven of these films that were made at RKO Radio Pictures between 19. 42 and 44. But in some ways, Falcon Volume 1 is a follow-up to yet another series. Because there were similarities between the Falcon, the Falcon, and <laughs> the Saint films, which George Sanders had starred in at RKO. We all say Saint, by the way. Yes. And it. then the studio decided to move him into a similar character, but... The Falcon had actually been written by Michael Arland for a magazine article in Town & Country magazine in 1940. Oh. Town & so, Country used to publish hard-boiled detective fiction? That's right. <laughs> that's a Town & Country I want to live yeah, in. Yeah, my mom got a different version. <laughs> so Can't the, wait to see what Architectural Digest published the back characters, then. <laughs> the character's name actually was Gay Falcon, and that was the mm. man's first name as in Gaylord uh -huh. and when they made the first film which was called The Gay Falcon they changed his last name to Lawrence inexplicably so right and then after a few films George Sanders decided he didn't want to play the role anymore and hence was the creation of the Falcon's brother Tom in Lawrence. which we were introduced to the character of Tom Lawrence played yes. by played by George Sanders real life brother Tom Conway Good brother, huh? We've I'm tired of this that's role. That's right. I'm going to give it to my brother. And, you know, George Sanders is, of course, great in The Saint and in The Falcon Volume 1, both of which are available from the Warner Archive collection, yes. warnerarchive.com. But let's just say it's apparent that Tom Conway really relishes the role in a way that George Sanders was delivering. He, I, I think he loves it. Yeah. He's adding. Yeah. Now, we've seen a bunch of these coming up to this, and I was approaching this one going, oh, maybe I'll see, like, you know, a few of them. I'll watch the first few. This is a lot. I got it. They're like Monday, candy. Sunday. I sat down and watched all six, six hours straight, completely blowing my Sunday watching these because I was Making so Making your in. weekend, he meant They're to say. I was so and sucked into these. Th there were nine more films made in the series once Tom Conway took over the role, and we are finally releasing the final six in the series, keeping the chronology. It's been almost a year and a half since we released volume one. So what was the delay, pray tell? The delay was that, in fact, all six of these films have been remastered for this release, and we're really thrilled with the quality of how good they look. But film number three on disc number one, which is The Falcon in Hollywood, oh. uh, that film element is a brand new film element that was created from mostly, except for one reel, the original negative, wow. which was deposited Library of Congress. So it was a matter of bringing the film in for film preservation. One of the reels had deteriorated, so I had to go to a second generation element for that. But the creation of the element from which we did our mastering took almost a year to create, hence the delay. This is the first time that any of these films have been remastered in 30 years, folks. 1983 is when RKO mastered wow. the Falcon films. And the, our last release had mostly new masters, but not all. Some were some digital masters that had been done here about 10 years ago. I think three of them were older, better quality masters, but we remastered the rest. 
But here, all six are remastered, and the results are very much seen and heard as we have nice, clean soundtracks and the beautiful imagery. They really take advantage of the high production values that were given to these films, even though they were 60 minutes or so B pictures. But they have a very A-like feel to them, I think. Well, it was kind of fun in this They're all fun. I mean, no, no, but one of the fun parts for me is I love locations and, like, 40s location shoots. And they kept trying to send them to as many far-off places as they possibly could, thanks to the technology of rear-screen projection. Really and, bad rear-screen projection. But the B unit, they get this great stuff. And then just, like, but as an effect, like, I think audiences at the time would, would buy, you know, it. They was bought totally it accepted. Fine. It's really only in the last... 20, 30 years that now, you've hit on something that, much that, more sophistication uh, but about that. is a sidebar that I'm going to bring in in a little bit but don't want to delay things too much with my strange sidebar but the briefly run down the films is yes, The Falcon please. Out West 1944 uh, and that's followed by The Falcon in Mexico also yes. from 44 and then The Falcon in Hollywood from 44 then we get The Falcon in San Francisco in 45 The Falcon's Alibi in 46 and The Falcon's Adventure in 46 now what I thought was interesting, aside from the films themselves, is watching a cinematic transition in style between the 44 and the 46. There's a number of things. By the end of 46, we are solidly out of the charming rogue mystery thin man genre, and we're entering the new sort of 50s noir. detective yeah. noir thing. There's little things like only in the Falcon Out West do we have the standard Falcon ending of like a new girl shows up and it's like, yeah. you know, send my mail to Havana and that's <laughs> that's the way these adventures always well, end. And there's a, you think that the next <coughs> film is going to be the Falcon in Cuba, but right. it's the Falcon in, in Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> and then, Close but enough. that, but Falcon in Mexico just ends with him going home. There's no sudden mystery with the new girl. Also, Falcon out west and Falcon in Mexico both begin with the old school RKO and the rest of the films all begin with the music. So there's, there's like a studio presentation change going on. And then if you watch the fashion and the decor, we see this change. Now, for me, the most outstanding example is The Falcon's Alibi, which is very much a different film that, from all the that movies. One, that one is different. Because there's not really a mystery going on. No, but he's looking for an opportunity, and it's then a, it's, opportunity finds right, him. Right, but I mean, there, there's a subplot of a jewel heist that he solves, but that right. is wrapped up into just a straight crime picture that's very much yes. shot noir. Absolutely. It is. And, and quite significantly and he, stars Elisha Cook Jr. as as the antagonist and you know and he spins well, a mean record yeah, he sure oh, does. <laughs> I loved I the, loved the, the whole DJ setup yeah the, but here's my question yeah, this okay. is my sidebar see this is us getting uh, excited what city uh-huh. does the Falcons alibi yeah. take place in they it's a west play. coast no they don't it's a west coast city they, because the radio station call letters are K K the hotel is the Barbary Arms. They refer to Barbary, which would indicate San Francisco, but it's too warm for San Francisco. Yeah, it's not. And they're to watch horse racing. See, I'm saying thinly veiled San Diego. That's it. I'm done. I don't think so, because when he goes to Mexico, it takes a lot longer. And when he goes out west, I think that his city changes. It's the mythical city. They never No, say no, he's it. in a different city. I each think one, but. Dan's right, but they weren't going to call it the Falcon in San Diego. Right, because San right. Diego, yeah. They just, okay. yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess you're right, in San Diego. I'm thinking his home city. His is home city's New York. Yeah. No, no, no. Very, in, very the, in the original, yes. Okay. Yes, now, Dan, I have but to he's ask on you, the West Coast for this whole season. I guess that's I, where I, I get confused. I do have to ask you how you were emotionally able to come to grips with the reappearance of the Goldie character, but no Alan Jenkins. Oh, well, 
This is sort of a. Oh, it's, oh, a, we, it's, a it's We were a, discussing it's this. It's a before. triple tragedy. Yeah, because one no, Alan one watches these films and go, but if only it was Jenkins. No offense to Edward Brophy or Vince Barnett. Brophy especially is quite charming, but they just don't got the jenks. Dan. I'm going to come, because I tried to get this started with you earlier today, because I'm going to defend Edward Brophy on this one. You don't need to defend Edward Brophy, he's just no joke. There are many people who have societies who pay homage to Edward Brophy. Yeah, I think Edward Brophy was he's like a fine Goldie. Foil. He's a fine Goldie. He ain't I think no he Jenkins, was, but you know, I just wanted to know how Dan was coping with someone yeah. trying to... No, like, you, know, you know, for faculty in San Francisco, since it was so dependent on, on Goldie having a little bit less of an edge and interacting with a young child, you know, what? And interestingly, Brophy for that. The Falcon in San Francisco is directed by Joseph H. Lewis, who is one of the Meisters of noir, I would say that you know he he directed Desperate Searchers as one of our recent releases, and uh, is a very well known noir director that later went on to do a lot of television. But his stamp is a little bit more pronounced on this film. You don't really get a sense of the director imprimatur, except in two films: Falcon San Francisco is one of them, and then The Falcon in Hollywood. Hollywood Gordon, Gordon Douglas. Well, yeah. and, and that's the one that I wanted to point out as the extra special well, one that I oh, could recommend yes. for everyone. First of all, if you're looking for a starter Falcons. Conceptually brilliant, because he's coming <coughs> from, I guess, New York, even though he's never there. He's on vacation. Uh, he's, he's on vacation. That's the other thing, is in lot. these films, like I think like in the last five, he's trying, he's to, go trying to go on vacation, on vacation which can. just leaves you going... But what do you do for a job, Falcon? But that's kind of like murder she wrote. Like every time she'd it's go like somewhere. He's taking a break from being a jewel thief okay. to go on vacation and solve a murder. So, anyway. So he shows up to Hollywood and somehow finds himself at the RKO Studios. Even though it's not called RKO Studios. <laughs> Sunset but Studios. Folks, it's, it's RKO because Studios. Because they're up from sunset to and, sundown. And there's on a, the very stages where later Star Trek was filmed. <laughs> <laughs> when it was all RKO took was bought by Paramount, when right? But Desi Lou. So, so. so you're looking at the RKO, is the that left side of the lot, right? The left side, of, <laughs> the, the left side. No, of and Paramount. what's interesting is Goldie is only in the last three movies. He, right. Uh, yeah, the he the Falcon one. is companionless. Right. Well, the first that's four. right. In, that's right. He's in, riding in the TARDIS all by himself. Yes. But he he does pick one up in Hollywood who uh, who is great. The cab driver. The cab driver yeah. is amazing. The taxi. Taxi Driver is played by Vita Ann Borg, who I believe did a character called Vera Vague in certain films. I may be mixing up actresses, but she was a comedian in the 40s. It was very popular on radio and in movies, in B pictures. But she is a wisecracker. She's clearly a pain in his th- Oh, uh, she's a, a thorn in his side. She's a great and foil she's for wonderful. him, and she follows him into the studio. And she goes to Melrose to have a key made, which I thought was very, very important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if you're gonna have a key made, go to Melrose. Well, I guess I guess there were the facilities right That's outside right. the the lo- right. on the lot. And stop at Lucy's and have a drink of, on the way out. Of course, if the Falcon goes into a Hollywood studio, he's not only going to find movies being made, but a dead body. A dead body that's clearly prominently dead. They find him twice, I think. Yes, right? they, they have they to find sure him twice because in Hollywood you never know what's real. No, because they come back onto the set, which surprisingly looks like a movie set on the movie set, 
And then the body's gone. And then two of these films, The Falcon Out West and The Falcon Hollywood, have Barbara same, Hale. Barbara Hale, who people know best as the mother of William Cat. And as <laughs> Della, I'm kidding, of Della course. Street from Perry Mason, but also the star of our Warner Archive collection release, The Window. I just also wanted to. Give and you- I thought she was particularly. She's oh, good. Right. She's in great in Hollywood. Both. And she's playing very, but she's really good in The Falcon in Hollywood. I just don't get, you know, as a maven that loves movie musicals, I don't get what that musical number ah. is. For. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, only part of that movie that is like, let's shoot that number. And it's like, okay, you can't <laughs> dance. <laughs> did, You're making a musical? But did, I guess that's did you part guys, of the Although the, did, scene, the, the initial oh, scene in the damn. Mexican villa in The Falcon Out West, where she's wearing the Mexican dress mm-hmm. with the very... Oh, she looks a peach, no, folks. She's, she was a yes, beautiful, yeah. beautiful lady. And from what I understand, a nice person in real life. But... You know, she's in two of these films. You have a lot of character actors that are in two of If them. you pay attention, you'll see a lot. Like, Jason Robards, I think, is in two or three of them. Did Senior. you see Senior. Senior, George yes. Sanders walk by in Falcon uh, in Hollywood as he's at the gate? No, I have to go watch it again. Yeah. Oh, that's very when he, funny. When George he, Sanders as himself. As he's trying to get into the gate, which, by the way, by his brother walks by him and, and is not stopped by the security guard. Yeah. That's Which funny. those those studio security guards still exist, except we now have they like, don't have cats though. Well, we have cards now okay. that we have to flash. But at the time, he's like, "Do you have your pass?" Are you sure he wasn't dressed as Shere Khan the Tiger? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been Mr. Freeze. You have to really watch carefully for that. But we have six films on two doubly delicious dual layer discs for maximum bitrate. Remastered, they look great. The fans have been desperate for these. Now the series is complete. All 13 films now available from Warner Archive. The new Falcon movie mystery collection. Volume 2. Volume 2. Available now at WarnerArchive.com. Remastered for your viewing and listening pleasure. So we come to the end of this podcast. We- and here's a mystery. No letters. No letters. No. No. But if you want to send in a letter, we want to remind you that you can listen to Matt's dulcet tones as he tells you the address to send your letter to. First, I just want to put out a new challenge. Oh, wait. I have an idea. Saying no letters makes us sound bad. Instead, I'm going to say we have letters that we are choosing not to read to you. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But. If you'd like your letter read and stand a better chance, yes, we've gotten them in crayon. Yes, we've gotten a telegram. We have gotten a letter in braille. But if you can come up with a much more creative and a new way to give us your physical letter, please send it to Warner Archive Podcast, B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. We will personally escort that letter up to this very studio and read it on the air. Any podcast that can combine Squidly Diddly <laughs> and, <laughs> and mourning the omission of Alan Jenkins and a salute to Hiawatha has got to be worth its weight in Goldie Gold. <laughs> we are wrapping up this podcast, but don't forget that next week we'll be back with an all-new lineup of releases that are heading your way from the Warner Archive collection. So be sure to listen for the new podcast. Meanwhile, I am George Feldenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. I'm Tom Lawrence. Thanks for listening and make sure to look for the next Warner Archive collection podcast. (laughs) 